0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the 4 Press Podcast presented by GolfWeek.com. I'm your host, David Dusak. And this week, my guest is Stuart Hagestad. If you were to go on to the World Amateur Golf Rankings right now, you'd see his name in the number seven spot. You'd also see his name next to the 2019 U.S. Walker Cup team. He was a member of that squad that just defeated Great Britain and Ireland at Royal Liverpool, 15 and a half to 12 and a half, to retain the Walker Cup. We talked about his experience in the Walker Cup as well as overcoming first tee jitters at the Masters, the value of being really selfish if you want to be great at sport. And we also talked about why Stewart is never going to turn pro even though he played collegiate golf in USC and is qualified for three US Opens. Hey golf fans, listen up. If you are looking for other awesome sport podcasts, the USA Today Network has got you covered. But if you want to hear all about people getting kicked, punched, and beat up, if you are into mixed martial arts, then check out MMA Junkie Radio. If you want to stay up with all the topics that are trending in the world of sports and hear people speaking intelligently, then listen to our For the Win podcast, which is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and other popular podcast apps. As a matter of fact, you can see all of the USA Today Network podcasts, including podcasts for the NFL and the NBA, by going to podcast.com. Dot usatoday.com. I'd like to introduce to the program. Stuart Hagenstead, who if you're not familiar with amateur golf, is one of the more amazing stories, at least to me going right now in the world of golf. He and I met a couple years ago. I believe it. we, we were at uh, Canoebrook Uh, I think where we first met, you were qualifying for one of your three U.S. Opens, but he is uh, currently number seven in the world in the World Amateur Golf Rankings. That was the last one that came out. He's the number one mid-amateur player in the world and also a member of the 2019 Walker Cup team, which just defeated Great Britain and Ireland 15.5 to 10.5 to retain the Walker Cup. And again, the Walker Cup is... Sort of like the Ryder Cup, but it is the best amateur players in the United States against the best amateur players from Great Britain and Ireland. It was recently held at Royal Liverpool uh, last weekend, and the United States team came into the final singles round trailing and then uh, kicked some serious ass. Let's just call it like it is. And uh, I'm sure he's going to be much more polite than, than I'm going to be about the drubbing that they handed out. But uh, So tell me tell me a little about your weekend, Stuart. Welcome back home, and uh, how, how was Royal Liverpool?
1: Well, thank you, and that was uh, those are some very kind words that you know you had to say. So, thank you very much. That was that was quite the introduction. Um, yeah, man. Um, as we just talked about, and as I joked, I'm doing a little bit better today than I was yesterday on, on Monday after flying home. But um, I mean, just an unbelievable weekend. You know, something that you know that that myself and the boys and everyone there will never forget. And you know, I to do something that hasn't been done since 2007. And then, as you mentioned, you know, in that you know we won on foreign soil and. And then to do something that I I guess hasn't been done since 1963 or something like that that you know we were able to overcome a deficit on on un- on foreign soil going into the final day is is something that's pretty special and I just couldn't be more proud of the the group of guys that was there and you know Captain Crosby and Robbie Zalznick who helped out with our team just everyone involved just an absolutely incredible weekend and. Um, as I said, you know, something that we'll never forget. So So thank you.
0: one of the big disappointments that I had about the event, and there were very few of them is unfortunately, it was not broadcast here in the United States. It was difficult to follow the event as it was going on. Walk me through, if you will, the schedule. When did you arrive at Royal Liverpool? I'm assuming you probably flew into Manchester and then drove over. But when did you get to the course? And what were your initial impressions of it? I'm assuming you probably had not been there before.
1: Yeah, no, you hit the nail on the head, literally on, on all those points. It's kind of too bad that it wasn't on TV. Um, such an amazing event, you know, similar to, to the USA. the USAM. Obviously, a little bit more intimate with the teams, but you know, just to represent, you know, your country, whether it's TBI or the United States, and, and that you know, it is kind of one of, if not the highest honor in amateur golf. It's really too bad it wasn't broadcast. Hopefully, they can kind of you know, yeah, they got to fix that time. for sure. They got to fix.
0: They've, they've got to fix that.
1: Yeah, I, it's that's the bummer. I know it was on TV at LA, and the course showed really well. And you know, it was something that you know these boys are. You know, when they move on to the next level, they're playing in front of you know TV cameras, and there's obviously a lot of media. And it's it while it it's not too much of an adjustment. You know, it is just something else that they're going to have to get used to. And you know, I, I would really hope that you know there's there's a big enough fan contingent that wants to see that online and you know just on TV, and and that there is yeah. some monetary value that's there because I'm sure that's what's driving it, right?
0: It's uh it's one of the things where I think there is a reluctance to give amateur golf a real try because there there's first of all there's so much golf that's on television and this is a podcast that we could go right. off on for for days about totally. the you know you're, you're an economics kind of guy is scarcity and demand there is no scarcity when it comes to golf on television and so I right. think going up against The first full weekend of NFL and football and all that kind of stuff, there is almost like this paranoia about what golf will do in terms of ratings, in terms of revenue generation. And to bring amateur golf where players aren't household names yet, but there is a history of players who compete in this event becoming household names, say, three or four years down the line. And so it's a really good – nerds like me will check this stuff out, and, and we will be like, these are the players that we need to keep our eye on. These are the ones who we're expecting right. to be college studs if they're not already or people who will probably work their right. way onto the PGA Tour relatively soon.
1: Well, you look at that 2017, you know, that's obviously, you know, the, the big one, you know, between, I mean, you know, Ricky, Dustin, Billy Horschel, uh, what kyle stanley web simpson i mean it's just it's like boom 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 it's it's wild and then you go down to this 2017 team you know shoot six of the guys are now on tour and the other three have full web status so yeah no i i totally agree and it's a bummer but anyways um
0: what'd you think of back,
1: your, back to your original questions we got in we flew in as a team on friday and we played right off the plane i'll just give you a quick rundown of the week yeah. and I'll, I'll get to Hoylake. Yeah. um we got in as a team on Saturday morning. Um, we went and played a place called Wallasey, which was awesome. You know, just as far as the membership, they came out to support it. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the caddies that were with us for the week, you know, were all members of this place, Wallasey. and it was funny. The first hole, I mean, this is right off a of red eye, right? First hole, wind is humming off the left, <laughs> and you know, it's kind of it's kind of moving. Um, the golf course is kinda, or the golf hole is kind of a, a dog leg left and all the boys on the first tier like there's zero chance we have no we haven't hit a ball yet there's zero chance we hit this fairway like i mean just a whole bunch of right arms are you know showing that it's going right and it was just really funny but um way to, way to bring some was, confidence
0: coach thanks a lot for the first tee great
1: oh yeah i was i mean yeah so anyways <laughs> um zero chance so that was fun you know once we got a couple strings under our belt we were all right um and on sunday we went to royal berkdale
0: um <laughs> really slim awesome.
1: yeah it was that was cool it was blowing that day too it was blowing like 30 i think the low group the low ball in our group was like you know this is the second day after a flight i think the low ball in our group was 79 we came in we were like gosh how hard was that of course oh my gosh and we was like yeah it wasn't that hard i had 69 all of us were just like could you play like 14 holes like that's just not possible so yeah you know, that looks fun, but you know just another day of getting adjusted. So, And after that, we really spent the whole week from Monday until Sunday um, at Royal Liverpool. And as far as Royal Liverpool is concerned, um, it blew probably at least 25, you know, Monday to, I'd say, at least Thursday. Mm-hmm. You know, and it was almost like the classic example of where I felt like it was really important to kind of overtrain You know, where if you go out and you play, even if it's just, you know, 9 or 10 or 12 holes, all the boys can have found their own little kind of route, Um, you know, just to go out and play in the wind. if it's going to blow, you know, 25 or 30, well, if it blows 10 or 15, it won't seem quite as as brutal. Sure. Um, So it was important, you know, to go out and to kind of see the course in those conditions just to make sure that we were prepared, you know, for for anything that, you know, Mother Nature would throw at us. But um, I thought the golf course was fantastic. I thought it was... um, when I think of like very traditional linksy golf courses, you obviously think of, you know, kind of St. Andrew's and Carnoustie and anything that's really yeah. not open Rota. Right. So yep. St. George's, whatever it may be, I would absolutely put Hoyle kind of in that, in that category. And it was so fun to watch the golf course, you know, cause we played it during, um, the actual event, you know, where it didn't blow as much, you know, and obviously during the week where I just mentioned that it did blow and just to see like the different ways that the golf course would react, you know, given what mother nature threw at us. um, just what a what a fun test, and, and obviously it turned out well for us, but very fun.
0: So Royal Liverpool is a special place to me because that was the first British Open that I ever covered as working press. 2006 British Open was Tiger, Tiger. Woods beating Chris sure. DiMarco, and the course was just baked like you can't imagine. Um, of course, sure. he famously only hits driver once. Um, there's the whole thing about uh, out of bounds over that wall inside the, the park, which is Sort of an odd thing. It's a quirky place. I loved the little village of West Kirby where I was staying. I thought it was mm-hmm. just as charming as could possibly be. But as you were sort of describing that, the, the way, the idea of overtraining, do you practice or warm up or get ready for a tournament in a different fashion when you know it's going to be match play as opposed to stroke play?
1: That's a really good question. Um, I don't. Some might. I. I think it's kind of a mindset. I think in match play, um, like I. I always the one thing I can think of off the top of my head, this is such a stupid borderline, like I don't want to say junior golf or childish, but that's immediately what kind of comes to mind. Like it's a different mindset. It's more aggressive. Um, I do not listen to rap period, you know, unless I'm working out mm-hmm. the only time I'll really like listen to rap or anything more like just aggressive, like almost just like very like bravado kind of, you know, like you see no, guys like, before football games or basketball games. Like it's just, you need that sense of self-belief and you know, I don't think cockiness is, is a bad thing, you know, in, in the world of golf, you know, it, like, let's put it this way. If your only flaw is that you're on the cocky side and you're like genuinely like a nice guy, but you, you really do, you know, believe in yourself and your own ability. Like no one's going to go out there and do it for you. And, um, you know, I, I would even argue nothing against, you know, and I don't mean this in a negative or malicious way, but there's a lot of boys on tour that, you know, if you're to look at either swings that are games, you'd kind of be like, huh, how'd that guy make it? But, what it really comes down to is self belief. Absolutely. So, where I was going with that is like before match play, I will occasionally, you know, like listen to rap or just something that's a little more aggressive than say something like Jackson Brown, right? Or yeah, you know, no, like I mean, literally, no, I don't like, think that you could you could
0: listen to Steely Dan and then go out and get no, ready to kick ass. I'll,
1: I'll, I've listened to that too, like in before stroke play events. But like you're not I'm not listening to that before match play. It's right. something that's just a little more like, Hey, let's go out there and take names and kick ass. You know what I
0: mean? Yeah, no, totally. I mean and and one of the the, the names, I mean I, there's a couple there's so many questions I have on this, but uh when when I have been to Ryder Cup matches, which is what a lot of people sort of equate, you know, Ryder Cup and, and Walker Cup, there is an totally. electricity that is tangible. Um I yeah. remember vividly. I mean, I've been to away matches, uh you know on, on European soil and, and obviously home matches that, that we've played here and the most electric I've ever felt you know as, a, as somebody following this stuff on the first tee was 2008 Valhalla and and seeing just basically like just below pandemonium breaking out before oh, the yeah. first match I mean JB Holmes uh, the very first hole that they were playing is a dogleg to the left and he bombed one out over the trees on the left. And everyone's like, oh, my God, that's going to go OB. No, no, no. He was so jacked up that he he yeah. um, he must have aired it out 335. It's in the middle of the fairway. The crowd goes bananas. Um, it was incredible. And I don't know, basically, again, because we didn't see it on TV. And I want to sort of leave that dead horse by the side of the road. But describe for me how that first <laughs> tee experience and what that's like compared with what you felt and the sensations you had at U.S. Opens, you've played three of those. You've played in the Masters mm-hmm. as the U.S. mid-am champion mm-hmm. that got you into the Masters. How is it the same, and how is sure. it different?
1: Yeah, okay, so it's funny. You know, you talk about the J.B. Holmes example. I, um, Akshay and I, Akshay with T and I were partners in the alternate shot, and so I only ended up getting or having to hit one first tee shot. Um, so, and it was... So, Shay. Um, hit both the opening tee shots and alternate shot and what we kind of talked about before and I didn't want to like build it up because a lot of guys I feel like have kind of said you know you're going to put that tee in the ground your hands and be shaking and it's representing mm-hmm. your country and I was like no 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 like he's he's younger right and I he's 17 and um, you know I think that there may have been some degree of you know and I was happy to be this person for him but he was kind of looking to me to be like hey you know what's that first tee shot going to feel like yeah. or whatever because you know I've, I've, I know what that feels like I think that, and it's not taking away anything from it, but if you build up that first tee shot to be, you are know, representing your country and it's this massive deal. And I was like, Shay, like you've played some big events, right? And yeah, I'm like, okay, well, you know, you've hit a lot of first tee shots. Yeah. I'm like, okay, well, yes. Like all those things are a factor, but dude, you've done it a thousand times. Just go out there, pick a small target, swing aggressively, and let's just deal with the consequences after that. Like I wanted to do my best to like not, build it up. Does that make sense?
0: No, it makes total sense because it becomes a self-fulfilling kind of negative prophecy. It's the risk is that you go out there, you build it up and then you don't perform to what you want and you're, you're, yeah. you're recovering for three or four holes. The, no, the reward, totally. which is small is that like you stripe the thing and then you're like, I'm Superman, but it's not worth yeah, on, it's on it's the like very first hole to, to feel that way.
1: Yeah. So I mean, totally. So, you know, we went out and I, I kind of tried to subtly encourage him to hit four irons instead of two because um, I figured adrenaline might be pumping. Mm-hmm. He ended up hitting two iron, and he absolutely just murders this thing on like such a perfect line. And again, I didn't want to like build it up, but I was like, you hit that pretty well, didn't you? He's like, dude, I crushed that. It's awesome. <laughs> it was great. So, I was so happy for him. it. Was so, it was so cool. But I mean, the Masters is, they're very different. So um, the Masters, I was much more nervous on the tee from an individual standpoint you know just as far as essential sense of you know personal and individual accomplishment and then all the friends and family have been there and obviously just that first tee shot at augusta i mean there's just something there's an there's an, inti- there's there an intimacy really- about it
0: i mean i think that it's it's, it's so a bigger incident. it's Absolutely. a it's a bigger venue than people get it credit for but unless you're yeah. in one of the feature groups on the weekend there's probably you know, uh, a couple hundred people, but not more than that. That are going to see you. There's no grandstands. Yeah. There's no thing that's there. It's only people that are literally level head high, but they're right on top of you, so you can feel and yeah. hear people breathing. There is an intimacy to it that I would imagine for some people can be kind of unnerving if you're not ready for that. So,
1: so I'll I'll tell you kind of a quick funny story. And he and I have talked about it since then, so I don't so I don't feel bad telling it in this way because he he would laugh about it the same way. So I was paired with. Larry Mize and Brian Stewart and on the first tee, this is in 2017 where it was blowing like 25 and it was pretty cold and it was just a real tough day. Like mm-hmm. Charlie Hoffman shot 65 and everyone was like, that's, that's just not possible. <laughs> um, so Larry Mize is, we- is wearing like this purple cashmere sweater, just like dress signs. He's done this million times. Perfect. He like stripes them down the middle. So then Brian Stewart was going after him and Brian was playing his first masters as well. Um, so he goes to the first tee, and like you could tell like kind of nervous energy, like player to player. And um he stands up and he hits this thing so far right. The wind's coming off the left. He hits this thing so far right. Like it felt like he hit it across Washington Road, like into Tennessee. And um he actually he ended up making the cut and he, I think but he think he made like double or triple on the first hole. It's that's why I was saying like Ryan and I have laughed about this since because I was nervous. But then to see that first tee shot right before I had to hit was just like, oh gosh.
0: Well, Um, hell, I'd I'd look at it as, like, I know I'm better than that. I mean, you know, like, I can go left of the earth and be better than that. But it was
1: just, it was just so, it was just so, like, it made it so human, you know, and I was already aiming it on the left side of the fairway, and I hit this thing, I just, I literally aimed up, like, the nine pole, I was just like, I will not go right. Um, Ended up hitting it in the left trees and made bogey, but anyways, (laughs) um, so, it's just, that's very different. Um, So then... The U.S. Open, you know, in my first year after that, like, Aaron Hill's the first hole so tight. You know, there's junk down the left and there's bunkers and thick rough down the right. But it was weird. Like, you t- we talked about overtraining. Like, you know, you-, you go to that first tee shot and you're like, well, shoot. I mean, I handled the one at Augusta, like, I'll be fine. Like, you know, we- we'll- we're going to be okay. It was mm-hmm. like a much more sense of, like, personal confidence that was there. Yep. Um, Shin- Shinnecock, um, I mean, it was a four iron off ten or one, so that wasn't as That's bad. That's no big deal, yep right um and then pebble this year um was a four iron off one and then a driver off ten um so anyways but the the second most nervous i've ever been to answer your original question was at lacc just you know from the walker cups perspective and having la essentially be where i grew up my own golf course having 2500 to 3000 people on the first tee um oh my gosh like my just adrenaline and blood was just absolutely pumping and i mean i I hit this thing so hard. I hit two of them so hard, and just a quick another quick story. Um, first day, I mean, adrenaline is coursing through my veins. Anyone that's played golf at a high level knows. You know, if they catch one when adrenaline's going, like you know, you probably get at least an extra ten or twenty out of it. Sure. And I hit this thing like it catches the wind. It catches the speed slot. Like I couldn't have hit this better. It's maybe one of the best drives I've ever hit, and um, it was awesome. So I get up to my ball. I had like one seventy six or something. It was like seventy six or seventy eight and uh up hitting the green and doing whatever but so we get done with the day and to give a quick kind of idea of how far cameron champ hits it cameron champ was on our team that year and i saw cam in the team room after and i was like hey man like i had a pretty good one-on-one just entertain me i know you hit it past me <laughs> what did you what did you have into one and he kind of like sheepishly sheepishly was like oh i don't know i don't remember
0: yeah exactly why, sure he does like
1: one like 128 130 and i'm like like so why it went as good as i possibly can <laughs> Like, under all the perfect conditions, that's hot, run out, speed slot, downwind, adrenaline, you name it. And you are 50 by me.
0: Here's this nondescript-looking guy from Sacramento who's just in another area code. Exactly.
1: I'm just like, come on,
0: bro. Get out of here. So, (laughs) anyway, So, you guys, if I'm not mistaken, had a mini-camp. I think it was in Florida a few months ago where basically everybody that was potentially going to be involved and on the team for the Walker Cup was asked to come and basically play golf and bond up a little bit and was part team building exercise, maybe part sort of just stacking up. But what was it like and how important looking back on your success, especially with Sunday, was an event like that to to go through that and do the team building stuff and have everybody sort of just get to know everybody? I, I imagine it's actually, in a sneaky way, really valuable.
1: Yeah. Um, the The practice session, I think, allows people to kind of just, if nothing else, get a little better idea from a personal standpoint, you know, about some of the things that go into the Walker Cup, you know, having ex-players come around and to talk about, you know, the experience that they had and how big of a deal it is. And it's just, I think it kind of, you know, to use your word, you know, regarding the first tee, you know, at Augusta National, it kind of makes it a little bit more intimate, you know, just how big of a deal and how much it means to some of those players that maybe played in a Walker Cup in, for example, like Benny Giles' case, you know, 50 years ago. So it's just, Um, it makes it a little bit more personal and I think it's huge you know from from that perspective but also just just to be around the boys and you know just to to kind of start you know those unique relationships that hopefully if you end up making the team end up you know lasting for literally the rest of your life so Mm -hmm. um, you know that's those are two big things but I would say even more than that the, the practice session that we had after the team was chosen at Pinehurst to be able to go, you know, before we went over, you know, as a team to England was just as instrumental in our success and that we get to play with, you know, kind of each member of the team and see what their games are like and see the state we were all in and coming right off of the U S amateur, you know, which is obviously a very high stress event, you know, and it's kind of the last, the last push, you know, if you're trying to make the Walker cup team, if you're kind of on the fence, I would argue that that experience was just as, you know, just as important You know, was the one in in December, but, um, Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean,
0: well, I guess maybe, let me ask you this. So, so you're there, you're 28, maybe you're 27 at that time. I I forget, but the majority of the guys uh, are
1: 27, 27 in December, 28 now.
0: Yeah. So the majority of the guys are 19, 20, 21 or thereabouts. Um, Mm -hmm. does the dynamic with combined with your experience, and just your age. I mean, I'm not going to say that you can't relate to these guys. Of course you can, but but there is a difference. I mean, you, you talked about playing with Akshay Petit and, and the, the guy's 17. Um, was your role on the, the team sort of defined just ba- basically by the fact that you had already played some Walker Cup and that you were just a little bit older? Like you, it seemed on the outside like you were the perfect older brother sort of situation, if you will, or um, figure to to this team.
1: Well, I think first off, the kids are so good. You know, they don't, a lot of people have kind of asked like, you know, what have you kind of taught them about, you know, your game or like, hold on, hold on. The kids <laughs> Let's are reverse so good. That. I mean, yeah. yeah, yeah. Hold on. Like, you know, the kids are, are so good and so talented. They're only getting better at a younger age as you know, evidenced by Akshay and Cole and, you know, Norman a few years ago and doc. And um, so if they ask me any questions regarding the Walker cup or what it feels like, or, you know, different parts of the event, sure. Like I'll answer it to the best of my ability, but, I mean, unless they ask something, you know, I'm just, I'm going to try and stay out of the way. And I think that's something I've gotten better at as I've gotten older mm-hmm. at LA, you know, because it was so personal, I tried to help a little more than I maybe should have. And I learned pretty quickly that week that the kids golf IQs are way, way superior to mine. So just, <laughs> just to shut your mouth and stay out of their way. Yep. Um, so from that side of it, you know, yes and no, um, you can kind of read that, you know, as much as you want, but. As far as like a role, and I get what you're saying, um, it, it definitely feels like kind of a, an older brother type role. So I have two younger brothers that are um, a sophomore and a senior in college. So from the relating to them side, I mean.
0: Okay, you got like that I'm, then.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't listen to the same music that I do. Like, I don't know what the new Post Malone album is called because as I already said, I don't listen to rap. But I mean, from the side of what's,
0: you know, if I were a coach, though, you know, I would think like, that, they, that I can't draw up a better partner for Akshay than yourself. Someone who has played on these things before, he's automatically, I think, going to not necessarily defer, because I don't mean it to be a passive or a giving you sort of the reins, but there's a very natural way that that relationship could probably go based on the fact that you both respect each other's games. You both know mm-hmm. you can play. Um but him being the youngest and you being the oldest putting you together to me is, is almost a no brainer.
1: So, so Shay and I told him this out on the golf course and you know, if he was nervous, he didn't show it. Shoot. If anyone was nervous between the two of us, I guess it was me. I didn't give him any help the first day. And thankfully the second day I helped him a little more, but Mm -hmm. that kid, I, I love that kid. I mean, he, I, I wouldn't say I feel like an older brother to him, but I mean, I just, he's, he's awesome. Um, you know, as far as, as far as this game, he's, you get him on the golf course and he's not a 17 year old, you know, he looks like a guy that's been, you know, kind of in between, you know, the web or corn Ferry and the PGA tour. And I mean, he's just, he's so, so mature for his age, you know, especially on the golf course. Um, he's got one of the, I've told him this, you know, whenever I felt like it was appropriate, you know, when we were playing, but Mm -hmm. he's got one of the highest golf IQs I've ever been around. The way he conceptualizes you know, different just tee shots and the way that he just synthesizes information on the golf course. I mean, it's incredible. I mean, he he does things at 17 that I don't even think of at 28. I mean, it's unbelievable the way he puts it and chips it and see shots and adjusted lines and wins and you know just yardages. It's so, so impressive, and um, I just think the world of him. And I I think he will do great, and obviously I hope he will do great. But I, I think he'll be in a name that'll be out there for a long. time.
0: Well, what's um, what's interesting um, to what's interesting for me is that he's obviously skipping college. I mean, he's turning professional and mm-hmm. is going to get some interesting opportunities. And I'll be looking forward to seeing exactly what kind of road he's going to take to the PGA Tour and how it all works out. From a talent standpoint, you're echoing what I've been hearing a lot of people saying to me is that you know it's the, the talent is undeniable. the the course management skills and the way he gets himself around a golf course is undeniably way beyond his age. Uh, he's ranked right now number five in the amateur ranking. So you know he's he's achieved in amateur golf now with the Walker Cup, just about everything that he's going to achieve in terms of amateur stuff. And now we're not putting the NCA things in there and, and what that can mean for him, with a Hogan Award and all those kind of things. But so he's going pro, and we're now about twenty five minutes or so into this. Why aren't you a pro?
1: You know, I think it's the question everybody asks, really... and I just
0: I've been, I've been sort of like yeah. holding that one in the chamber. And coming out of this, no, there are a bunch of your teammates right. who are doing it, but, but I know you've answered it. But why, why, what made yeah. you decide that that's not going to be the road you're going to follow?
1: No, it's all right. So, like when I was in college, um, you know, making Walker Cups and being a first team All American winning college tournaments, it was never really one of my goals. So, when people kind of say, you know, why didn't you turn pro out of college? It's like, well you know, it was never really a goal of mine. Um, one, because no agency knew who I was. But two, you know, it just it simply it simply just wasn't really something on my radar. Um, you know, I I still remember calling coach. I think it was beginning of my junior year, and it just did become kinda of clear to me that, that golf wasn't quite as important as it was, you know, when I was younger and, you know, when I dreamed of playing on the PGA tour and making a billion dollars and, you know, being the next Tiger Woods and it just became kinda of clear that there's so many good players out there and so many that you've never heard of and you know, they all, it's not, it's not really about how bad do you want it? That's not really the case. I mean, you know, as well as anyone, you know, so many guys work their tails off and it's not necessarily the work that goes in. There's, it's just some people are just better. And when you combine, you know, that raw natural ability as well as that work ethic and you get, you know, very amazing cases like tiger, Mm -hmm you know, Rory, Phil, um, mm-hmm. you can go down the list. So the work has always been a fun part of it. You know, I've always loved to practice and play, but, um, it was around my junior year where I kind of said, you know, I, I think there may be a different path for me.
0: What's so interesting is, uh, the I, reason. I, I'm sorry, go ahead. Please continue.
1: No, 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 no. no. I, I was just going to say like, you know, this whole, why didn't you turn pro talk never really happened until I was 25 and I won the medium. And then I was fortunate enough to go to Augusta and, you know, and to play well that week. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, to have made the cut and finished the lamb, but I've done, I've been fortunate to do some amazing things, you know, in the past few years, things that I never really thought possible. Um, you know, if you had asked me coming out of school, but you know, I I think what I'll ultimately say is as I've gotten older, I've become much more comfortable with the idea of not turning pro. Mm -hmm. Um, I know that a lot of people look at me and, you know, kind of my situation, they say, why aren't you going to do it? Well, short answer is I think if I look back in 30 or 40 years and, um, I'm essentially making a bet on myself that, you know, I'm going to have, you know, an amazing career, both on and off the golf or on and off the golf course, as far as, you know, amateur golf is concerned. But also, you know, if I do what I'm supposed to, and it's not like I don't have goals outside of golf. I do, you know, I'd, I'd love someday to, you know, to run my own company, whether it's with, you know, friends or associates or whoever, you know, even if I don't, you know, then to, to kind of move your way up the corporate ladder and be known for something that's much more, you know, than just, than just golf. It's something that, I literally, literally think about every day. And, you know, I look at guys that have been pretty involved in, in, you know, the world of golf, but also been incredibly successful, you know, on and off, you know, the golf course, you know, Jimmy Dunn, Seth Waugh, you know, George Zaringer's a good, you know, a good friend, Buddy Marucci is obviously famous for kind of being able to handle both. I mean, you go down a list of guys and to me, these are guys that have been able to, you know, be great husbands and great fathers and, you know, been able to affect, you know, kind of a community, you know, that's, Far, far more reaching than than the golf course is, and mm-hmm. I think what it ultimately comes down to for me is, um, I just think I feel more rounded, you know, as a person, kind of being able to balance and manage both. But right. um, it's, just, sort it's sort just of just not it, for me. That's it sort of strikes <laughs> against
0: something that. So I had an opportunity to interview Boris Becker. This is 20 years ago now at this point, and he was still coming towards the end of his playing career. Um, but, but he was still out on the ATP tour and was still Boris. Like he had that kind of magnetism. And I was asking him about what it took to be the number one player in the world. He he did achieve that. He obviously won Wimbledon's and U.S. Opens and all that kind of stuff. And he he looked at me and he said, in order to be the absolute best, you have to be smart enough to be able to understand how to play the game and dumb enough to think it's the only thing that really matters. And that quote always yeah. really stuck with me in that it's 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 the physical talent and the work you put in is is one thing. But it's the... The selfishness and sort of the single-mindedness that that it consumes almost your entire life. That everything that you do from the schedules that you keep, the food and the drinks that you put into your body, the the training that you do, the relationships that you have, all those things are to make you better at your chosen sport. And it sounds to yep. me like you came to the realization or just came to accept over time that that wasn't going to be part of the deal, and I think one of the reasons why a lot of people will probably still ask, well, why haven't you turned pro is that it's almost human nature. If you're if you're as good as you have become and you've achieved what you've achieved, it seems like the next logical step or progression is to get paid for that, and it's obviously a very lucrative thing. We're coming off an event a couple of weeks ago where Roy McIlroy earns $15 million for winning a golf tournament, which is, to him – not even lifestyle changing money, which is ridiculous right. to say, but it's not. But yeah, but seriously. to the average person <laughs> who would be listening to this, to 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 be able to bring in in excess of a million dollars for winning a golf tournament, and to have a guy who is capable of playing, competing, fairly close to that level, it's it's just a jarring kind of a thing. We're so used to the athletes and the money and playing at the highest level, and it's it's a very different take to hear somebody say. I actually am going to go a different route. I'm actually not going to have the final game piece be Tiger Woods or Phil Mickelson or Jack Nicholas. Nicholas may not be quite the thing because he's got so much stuff going on off the golf course, but you know where I'm going with that. And and now it's going to be the people that you had mentioned people who had played the highest level of amateur golf for decades in some cases Mm -hmm. or been around it for decades. And they also yeah. have this other life that maybe isn't quite as much about the spotlight, but they've achieved nearly as great a heights as that in that other profession, the thing that actually pays yeah. the bills. So I, I just so think like, people so, aren't used to it.
1: So, like, I mean, you're obviously – like, people are obviously going to say, like, some of the names I mentioned, you know, away from professional golf is obviously, like, the pinnacle of that. Well, right, but if we're going to compare, you know, the pinnacle of one sport, you know, where, you know, money essentially, as you mentioned with Rory, doesn't make as much of an influence, well, we may as well try and compare apples to apples then and, you know – I feel like I've done, I don't want to see a decent job of kind of navigating the world of of amateur golf and trying to, you know, not trying to, but, you know, having the chance to meet a lot of those influential people that are a Mm -hmm. part of it. But even look at like, you know, I don't know, like I think the guy that's maybe the, you know, kind of balanced idea of being an elite amateur golfer, as well as, you know, having a, a career beside it you know, it's probably Jay Sigal. I mean, besides Bobby Jones, yeah. is it really, and, and, you know, John Carr is it really close Who the best amateur, you know, from a resume standpoint is, it's gotta be, gotta be Jay,
0: right? I would think, yeah. I mean, right.
1: It's... So, I mean, is getting to his level a goal of mine? I mean, no, not, not necessarily. I mean, he did that over the course of 30 years or, you know, whatever, 20 or whatever it was, but I mean, let's just, as I said before, you know, let's I've kind of felt that, you know, at the end of this kind of run and I've had the chance to do it for a couple of years now. And by no means is it sustainable. This isn't going to last the rest of my life. I'm not even going to pretend to think that it would, but I've found that over the course of two and a half or three months, you know, playing, you know, as I have trying to set myself up to try and make a Walker cup team. And I've just found that I've become a little one dimensional, not, and I'm not saying it's a good or a bad thing, but to your point, you know, the quote that you had with Forrest Becker, um, it's something that I didn't particularly enjoy. It's not a good mm-hmm. thing or a bad thing. I'm certainly not judging at all. I think it's I the demands. Have- that,
0: I think it's the demands over time. If if you're going to stay at that level for years, I don't. I'm not sure yeah. you can do it any other way.
1: Oh, for sure. I, I, I don't. I don't think it's possible to do it any other way. You know, I, I just. I just enjoy kind of doing other things and learning other things, and I think it's really important to to kind of be involved in. You know. Things that you're passionate about and things that you, that, that interest you. I just think it makes you more interesting. I think it gives you a better story. I think it makes you more broad. I think it makes you more relatable. Mm-hmm. And those things to me, you know, are, are things that are important. And, um, I've been very fortunate to have two amazing parents that kind of instilled that to me, you know, at an early age. I, I like to brag about my younger brothers and sisters. I mean, I'm not only the least impressive from a, you know, I guess an academic or a professional resume side, but I'm also, you know, the least athletic in my family. My younger brother plays water polo at Stanford. My other younger brother plays football at SC. He's a double major in accounting and just signed with an investment bank in Lizard. My younger sister went to Stanford was computer science and got her master's there as well. And then there's me like, I'm literally the dunce of my family, so like that was the standard.
0: The crashing parents. sound you're about to hear is me throwing myself out the window for not achieving anything no, in life. So, Jesus like
1: that's, uh, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's 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 what I'm up against within my immediate family. So, that's you know, unbelievable. Have, yeah, my mom went to Stanford. My dad went to USC. I mean, he, my, so like, yeah, I mean, you're, just, you're in a,
0: you're in an environment, and it sounds like you were raised in an environment where the 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 concept of having athletic talent doesn't necessarily mean like, well, that's where we're going to push all our chips into the table on, you know, it's, it's right. going to be other things that are there when you're out on the range. And you've been, like I said, at the, at the top like, three U S opens, you've done the Masters. When you see guys out there hitting balls and playing practice rounds, what's the difference in their game and your game?
1: Belief. Belief. That's the biggest thing. I mean, if I'm sharp, I like to think I can play with just about anyone in the world. Sure, there's certain guys, you know, Rory, Tiger, Dustin, um, the way that Ricky puts it, the way that Jordan puts it when he's going well is, is incredible. But, you know, I mean, shoot, you could continue to go down the list, you know, and continue to name people. Um, but I really think the biggest thing is just genuine belief and kind of where you're at. Brooks, I think, really hit the nail on the head you know, a couple months ago when he said, you know, when I first got to the PJ tour, my goal was to make cuts. And I always felt like I was around kind of the cut line. And then the, you know, the goal became to top 10 and then to win. And you know, what happened subsequently kind of followed suit. So, you know, I, I think there's a really big part of that, you know, like when I go to the Mid-Am, you know, next week, I mean, and, and I don't mean to sound cocky in any way. And anyone that listens to this, please don't read into it more than what I mean is I genuinely believe that like if I don't go and try and win medalists and try and win in match play and win every match that I play, like, to me and my own personal standards, that's not good enough. It doesn't mean I'm being <laughs> cocky. It doesn't mean I'm being arrogant. But, you know, I, having played in a few, you know, US Opens, as you said, and a couple Walker Cups, and, you know, you you have to believe that you're at that level. And if you don't, you know, you're probably, and this is, this is just the realistic nature of it, but you probably won't make it either to the PJ Tour or on the PJ Tour. Like if you're going to ask Phil or Tiger, you know, anyone that's ever had, immense success you know not just in golf but in anything like if they believe that they're the best there that there is out there or, you know if, if nothing else that when they're playing their best or when they're you know when they're you know thinking their best you mm-hmm. know that they're the best there is then you know well that's probably where they're at
0: so. um so there's a couple of things i want to sort of follow up and then i want to let you go and get some rest and, and whatever what <laughs> you have uh you you have been using a broomstick pile putter for a long time. What was it like when the number one? I guess I never knew if you anchored it or not. But when the anchoring ban went into a, okay. So when the anchoring yeah. ban went into effect, how much did that sort of throw you off it at all? Because obviously you're still using it. Um, there have been some people who have caught some flack about or being accused of anchoring when they're not, or it's touching the shirt and and all this kind of stuff. My my own opinion when that anchoring ban went into effect was it's ridiculous because there was no data or any study that ever showed it was actually an advantage to anchor the putter, either in the sternum or the belly or, or the clavicle, wherever. No, no advantage of actually getting the ball into the hole. Just people didn't like the idea of it. Um, what, did that, what did that anchoring ban mean for you, and how have you sort of adjusted the way that you putt?
1: Well, I'll say a couple things. I mean, let's let's start by saying that, you know, anyone that is using a long putter or some kind of a counterbalance or even a claw, it's not like you came up in junior golf and you started clawing it or using an anchor putter. Right. Or, you know, a, a long putter. So right. To speak, Right. Like not to, <laughs> I wouldn't say be the bear of bad news or be the, you know, realistic person in the room, but you know, there's, there's typically a reason why, whether it's a confidence thing or you just needed to see something different or whatever. Yep. But I, I started using one after my sophomore year of college and I put it so poorly at pac 12s and, I just i wasn't really confident inside you know eight ten feet and kind of said you know what let's try something different i remember going to roger don which is a golf kind of a you know a golf box or golf superstore out here and um i looked at the anchor i I keep saying anchor i look at the the long putter and i look at the the broomstick putter and i was kind of like you know what screw it if we're gonna make a change like let's just try something totally different like a motor from a motor skill perspective so i grabbed the long putter and you hit a few putts with it and i I think it was Golf Digest or maybe Golf Week that pumped out an article. You know, with the way that Adam Scott had just changed to it, and he was putting well. So I, kinda, I remember I've told I've i I've, I've told Adam you know about this, and I still have kind of you know modeled the way that I would putt you know after him. And um, so yeah, so so to progress until now, like I did anchor it until I believe it was the end of 2015, and I tried using a counterbalance after that. Um, learned pretty quickly that that probably wasn't you know going to work to to play the level that I would have liked. So. I grab my old long putter and basically, and I still try and do this, what I've tried to do is make it as so obvious that and to this day, no player has ever come up to me and been like, Hey Stu, like, I think it's pretty close. Yeah. You know, like no one's ever said that. Right. So yep. I literally try and have it three or four inches away from my chest. Like I don't put the thumb on top of the grip. I, I have it down below. Mm-hmm. I always have, but I try and make it so obvious and apparent that nothing funky's going on. Um, yep. I mean, I was just in England, which is, I would like to think, you know, maybe besides Scotland, about as traditionalist as it gets. I think so. No one's ever said anything. It's its pretty obvious, especially if you're playing with me. So, yeah, I basically what I did is I took a chalk line and um, did some speed drills. And you're basically given a new lease on, you know, or hopefully new life on, you know, how to putt with one. And it's not like the nerves don't go away. They still are. I just have a little bit more confidence in it and, what I've always kind of told myself is, you know, even if you miss one or you know you do something wrong or whatever, you just got to believe that you know you're the best putter in the world. If you're putting well, you know, no one can beat you. Well, and that's all I, I was
0: it. I was at Ridgewood Country Club a couple of years ago when Vijay Singh kept saying that to himself before every putt. Liter- literally, he was saying and mumbling it to himself after every putt, and the guy couldn't miss that week. Now that charm wore off eventually, but um, going back to your, the idea of self belief, I think that there is no doubt something to it did you uh did you get to keep the pants that you wore on sunday and what are the rules about what as an amateur you're allowed to to get as far as clubs equipment apparel and all that kind of stuff because those uh those are some funky threads
1: the uh, pants from the Walker cup
0: yeah the the blue ones with the stars and like the whole like electric blue thing that was happening with you guys that was pretty styling
1: (laughs) well i guess we can thank jt for that so thanks for your new line big guy Um, um yeah, um, you know, I I'll be totally candid. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, you know, wearing wearing camo pants on Sunday singles is a big big risk, <laughs> high risk high reward. You pulled it off. If you lose in those pants, you that's that's a real tough look. But
0: you didn't you didn't um, lose. You won, so so it's all good. No, all we good. did.
1: No, that's what I said. It's high risk high reward. So yep. if it were me, I probably would have worn those maybe in the practice round on Friday. I've always kind of been a believer that. You know, more nondiscreet is is better. I would have, I would have taken the Marucci approach with, you know, maybe some some nice kind of dark blue slacks and a cashmere sweater, but smart you know, looking stuff. Me. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, but hey, no, I listen. Uh, we we did get to keep it. And, you know, we've been very lucky. You know that that Ralph Lauren and the USGA have an amazing relationship, and um, you know we were able to, to, you know, everything. I'm actually literally wearing a Walker Cup team kind of. Cool. I would sleep Huffy in that stuff if right I now. were you. I would be
0: sleeping <laughs> in those things like jammies. What, what can you keep as far as equipment stuff? I know that for collegiate players, obviously, they get bucket loads, But when, when you're sure. in your situation, what, what are you allowed to do as far as that goes in, uh, with apparel and with uh, with clubs and all that stuff?
1: Yeah, so I know this is kind of your, your bread and butter. So basically, yeah. the rules are is that um, all the equipment companies can support you, you know, basically up until they feel comfortable. Um i've had a great relationship with taylor and through the years you know mm-hmm. I've, I've i use you know voki wedges and uh, scotty putter and um you know i know a lot of the, the cowboy boys and i mean everyone's great you know i think that the biggest thing from a player standpoint you know is just like anything else in life is to be completely transparent if um and, and i'll get to where you're where you're going in a sec but if you or what you want to hear but um you know if, if someone gives you something and you know you've told them that you're going to play it well then just play it like don't tell someone one thing and then do another right, right. that's Pretty common sense. But as far as the monetary standpoint, you know, as an amateur, they're, they're not allowed to pay you, but they can support you in any way, Mm -hmm. you know, that they, that they feel appropriate. So if they want to give you literally 10 drivers, sure, that's fine. They just (laughs) can't pay you.
0: So one of the last things I want to sort of ask you is, um, explain what your life is like away from golf at some point or another, you're going to be playing, you know, the U S mid am, you're going to be heading out to Denver, Colorado, playing out there. Actually, I think it's in Parker, Colorado, technically. Um, that's going to be going on. Once that event finishes, what's the rest of your year like? When do you finally like slow down and actually get a job, you bum? <laughs>
1: well, I I have one, but uh, I'll go to work. Shoot, as soon as the crump's done. Basically, what I've done is, you know, I stopped at the end of May, and then I'll pick it back up at the end or at the beginning of October. Um, this is something that, as I've said before, absolutely will not last forever. But you know, it's at, at the same time. Like I've done the best I can to kind of balance all sides of it. So um literally from the beginning of October until and I'll make a decision regarding you know the Walker Cup in, in a few years or two years whatever it is but um, go back to work try and continue to build out my resume I I'm, I'm gonna I've already applied I have you know kind of a, a back option as far as my MBA is concerned I'd like to go back and go get my MBA. Mm-hmm. I'll apply to a couple schools I, I don't think it's difficult to find out what those are you know just one more time just to see if it works if it doesn't well then I'll move on and, Go back to my alma mater for my MBA, likely. So, the short answer is just you know go back to, I guess you could call it real life, and uh, continue to build out my skill set, and you know hopefully you know, I guess build out a resume, and then uh, I already mentioned what my goals are off the golf course earlier. Yeah. So, you know, try and continue to chip away at you know accomplishing those. So that's be, that's about all it
0: is. Will you be cheering for the Lakers this year or the Clippers?
1: <laughs> I'm not a I'm not a huge professional sports fan. I just think there's so much more passion in college. I like watching like the amateur side of it as far as like the mistakes are concerned. But I mean, yeah, between, between the Lakers and the Clippers, it's going to be an awfully fun year to follow. I mean, what top three, the best defenders in the league, you know, versus, you know, what two of, if not three of, you know, the best Lakers core we've had in a decade. I think you've got at least
0: three guys who legitimately have a chance to be an MVP playing on the same court. You know, every for other sure. night or whatever it's going to be should be some pretty fun stuff. How often do you get back to SC for football games and stuff like that?
1: Um, I won't be able to go in September just due to some other stuff going on. But um, in light of our SC, you know, unless in, in light of so I grew up as in like the Pete Carroll era, right? You know, Reggie Bush, Lundell White, sure, Matt Liner, My lot dad of likes SC. A lot of winning. I mean, I've been going to SC games since I was a toddler,
0: literally. So some of those wins vacated, but but I digress. Okay.
1: Yeah, yeah, but you know, <laughs> but if you were winning at the time. You know, if, yep. But if you were to time. ask anyone, you know, that's an Oklahoma fan, you know, who won fifty-five to nineteen. Oh yeah. You know, that's yeah. So, but you know, we exactly those wins never happened. But whatever. <laughs> it's the NCAA. Um, what are you gonna do? Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. So the the short answer is, I try and go back for as many as I can, but yep. at the same time. Unfortunately, the way that the L.A. culture in California kind of works is (laughs) this is so, so materialistic and superficial to say but like, you know, if we're going to have a year like last year, it's just depressing. You know, it's kind of like like it's like I want to go and I want to support our team, but I don't want to go out there and, you know, see us lose. So but no, like I watch every game. I watch all the highlights. Um, As I said, my younger brother's on the team. So I'll go to support him. I love my alma mater, you know, just the way that you know my dad does and all my best friends do. So I'm originally from Syracuse,
0: go... New York, and I just watched them you know, I yeah. want to support the team, but I watched them lose oh, by like forty five points to Maryland and now the home oh. openers this weekend and, and they're bringing in Clemson. So I mean, you know yeah. you gotta so, sort like, of brace for impact. See,
1: yeah, see so you hit the nail on the head right there. They gave him a game last year, by the way, for the oh, first no, half yeah.
0: too. Yeah, for sure. No, they play him tough, but it's one of those things where you don't You you want to do the right thing, you almost feel obligated to do the right thing, but in the back of your mind you know that it's a losing cause, and yet you go through with it anyways, and that's the way it goes. So listen, I appreciate, uh, for the people who are listening to this won't know that there was actually a phone call that took place before this one, three hours ago, where I woke Stuart up, who I didn't know you were (laughs) even on West Coast time at five in the morning, and here's my ding-dong self calling you up. No, no, no. I'm glad you wasn't. I'm glad you I wasn't you got some 100% more sleep.
1: clear. I wasn't 100% you know, fully functioning yesterday, so that was a miscommunication on my end. So Not a problem. It's
0: all good. Best of luck out in Colorado. Um, and then uh, best of luck with the rest of the season. I know you've got a couple more events and some things to finish up as far as uh, golf goes. Stay in touch, and uh, I appreciate you giving me this much time. It's been a lot of fun. Yes, sir. Thanks, Dave. Anytime. Yeah. Thanks for calling.